Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And to the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is established forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? This is the word of God. It's true. It never fails. What is on your playlist? Some of you probably don't have playlists, but many of you do on your phones. Of course, uh, I'm from, I was raised in the 90s, so back then we did have cassette tapes. Um, and then we moved to CDs, and now we just have playlists on the phone. So what is on your playlist? What songs move you? What's the soundtrack of your life, right? Some people talk about their music like that. Well, I was delighted to sing Psalm 9 this morning. Didn't know we'd be doing that. Because the godly have a playlist, and it is the book of Psalms. And the themes in the book of Psalms often are not found in contemporary Christian music. And even in many of the hymns. Some of them are, but many aren't. The Lord executes his threatening word. We read of that. We read of the oppressed. We read of judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. He who avenges blood is mindful of them. These are the lyrics that should be on our playlists, at least portions of them. And so today I want us to look at one of the songs that we have in sacred scripture, Psalm 102. Now there are times that Christians lose. There are times that the saints are trodden underfoot and there are times that the children of God suffer terribly. There are times that the followers of Christ die abandoned by men and apparently forsaken by God. Sometimes a Stephen gets stoned, a Perpetua gets thrown to the beasts, a Jim Elliot gets speared. 
A 13-year-old Magdalena Luther dies despite the prayers of her father. Sometimes the righteous are in agony and the wicked are at ease. Does it not feel that way today at times? When we look around and see the righteous punished, we see the shedding of innocent blood and yet the wicked are at ease in Zion or in Babylon, I should say, and we have wicked prospering while the righteous in one sense live in fear that we will be persecuted, we will be targeted next because of our faith. Sometimes the days of the righteous pass away like smoke. Sometimes our bones burn like a furnace. Our hearts are struck down and we wither under the heavy hand of providence. Sometimes we cry out with a loud cry of lamentation and despair. Sometimes we are alone, our enemies rejoice over us, and our tears mingle with wine. We eat no bread and we waste away. We lie awake at night alone like an insignificant creature in a vast and barren wilderness with no light on the horizon. In those times we wonder, along with the psalmist, how long will God hide his face from us? Will he forget us forever? When will he act? There are times we are cast down by the mighty hand of providence and it seems cruel and unrelenting and we cannot bear the weight of it and we crumble. We are, after all, but dust and ashes. What is your life, James says, but a vapor that appeareth for a time and then vanisheth away? This was a lament of the psalmist in Psalm 102 and it has been the godly lament of many of God's children in ages past. And I do think it has been, or is, or will be, at some point, the lament of many, if not all of us, in this room. The Christian is not spared from lamentation. But we do not weep as the world does, at least we should not. And so what then is the downtrodden saint's hope and comfort amid the sorrows in this veil of darkness? What is it that will sustain you through the dark times? I know many of you have been through them. Many are in our future. The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism ask this question, the first question, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Well, Psalm 102 answers that question for us, and my hope is that the Holy Spirit would enable us to find comfort, the same comfort that the ancient psalmist found. So I encourage you this morning to open up, if you have not already, to Psalm 102, and I want to draw your attention to the constant consolation of the Christian, even amid the deepest despair that we can experience in this life. We'll read through the whole psalm, but I'm going to do it in portions, so let's start with verse 1, and I'll read through 11. I'll start with the title, A Prayer of One Afflicted, When He Is Faint and Pours Out His Complaint Before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. 
For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the days, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle, my, and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Have you ever felt like that? The psalmist here lays out his condition and his complaint. He is undone. His heart is struck down within himself. And he ends his lament in verse 11 with this, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Let's begin by noting that a deep and dark spiritual depression, if you will, a cry of despair, lamentation, these things are not a sign that someone is not a Christian. The suffering of persecution, the loss of those nearest us, the destruction of the innocent at the hands of the wicked, and many other painful occurrences will befall God's people until they leave behind this veil of tears. The child of God is not immune from such realities and the pain and darkness of soul they bring. In fact, I would argue, in many ways, the Christian has more reason for deep and bitter lamentation than the unbeliever in this fallen world. For who among the ungodly will ever say, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. But that is our cry and lamentation even this morning as Pastor Joel prayed, as the law of God is spurned around us, as there is theft of our property, as there is destruction of the innocent and the shedding of innocent blood with the approval of magistrates. There is the constant threat of the wicked punishing the righteous for what? For educating their children, for selling milk to their neighbor, for preaching the gospel. Many tears should be shed because people do not keep God's law. And in such despair, the child of God turns to his heavenly father and if nothing else he cries out why O Lord do you stand far away why do you hide yourself when the innocent are slaughtered why do you hide yourself when our neighbors are persecuted for selling us meat and milk why do you hide yourself when people are threatened with jail time for serving their neighbor where are you Lord If a Christian has not asked that question, if a pastor here in this county has not asked that question, I wonder if he has not closed his eyes to the wickedness around us. That should be the godly lament of a Christian living in this age. But I want to remind you that every time the psalmist asks that question in utter desperation, where are you, God? Where are you? Every time he asks it, the answer does come. Every time a godly saint has buried his child and asks that question, 
Every time the faithful Christian missionary lies dying in a pool of blood at the hands of a wicked regime, every time a righteous man is betrayed, every time a godly wife remains barren, every time the answer comes, every time a faithful remnant witnesses the destruction of the righteous and the advance of evil and we cry out, where are you, Lord? The answer does come. And so I want us to find comfort in that answer this morning. In verse 12, the psalm, the song, the psalm and the song here, it pivots. This is the change. Verse 11 ends with the child of God broken and in despair, a seemingly insignificant and inconsequential cog in the machine of destiny churning on and leaving the faithful as so many pieces of discarded debris in its wake, like grass clippings in a pile of brush. That's how he feels. And again, have you felt that way? <clears throat> have you ever felt like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow when he wrote this? My life is cold and dark and dreary. It rains and the wind is never weary. My thoughts still cling to the moldering past, but the hopes of youth fall thick in the blast and the days are dark and dreary. That's how the psalmist felt. But look at verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Now I want you right now to also look at verse 27. Because verse 12 and verse 27 summarize the comfort of the child of God. We have 1 through 11 is the, is the complaint, the lament, and then 12 to the end is the comfort. But these two verses, 12 and 27, bookend the consolation in this song, touching on the same theme. Verse 27, but you are the same and your years have no end. Of course, we read from Hebrews 1. You'll recognize this verse is quoted in Hebrews 1. And the author makes it clear that this has always been about the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. This song right here. Psalm 102. And so the point this morning is that our consolation in the darkest of days is nothing less than this. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And so I want to point out to you this morning three comforts in this song, three consolations for you in your darkest hour. Maybe that hour is not today. Maybe that hour is tomorrow. But when that hour comes, stand ready, armed with the promises of God and the hope of all the ages. So if you're taking notes, there'll be three points. And let's start with the first one. Three comforts here. The comfort of the church's future. The comfort of the church's future. Let me pick up in 13, I'll read through 16. But you will, ar you will arise and have pity on Zion... It is the time to favor her, the appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory. Now I want us to note that although the lament was intensely personal in verses 1 through 11, right, it's 
the lament of the psalmist, we see in verses 12 through 16 that the psalmist turns his attention to the future of Zion as his first comfort. Here is the Old Testament parallel to what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do we realize the promise we have here? Not one of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the church will fail. All will come to pass. Again, look at verse 15. The nations will fear the name of Christ. The kings of the earth will fear the glory of Christ. Christ will build his church and all will see his glory. You see, my friends, in the church's victory is our victory. In the church of Christ is the only victory. The day will come when all the taunts of the wicked, all the devastations of sin, all the weaknesses of the flesh and the frailties of our bodies will find their end in the ultimate victory of the church of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ loves the church so much that he is not interested in victory without her. Christ is so committed to the church, to his bride, that the idea of him being victorious over Satan without her with him is unimaginable. It's unthinkable. He will never leave or forsake her. Where he goes, she will go. If he goes to prepare a place for his bride, he will come again and take her to himself. And this is, by the way, the example to you, husband. There is no spiritual victory in your life without your wife. Christ does not leave the church behind. His victory is her victory. And your victory as a husband can only be measured if your wife is with you in your spiritual victories. So the psalmist finds comfort in the victory of the church. And Christ himself found his comfort in the victory of his church when the scripture says he despised the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. The children of God that he would ransom and rescue and enjoy for eternity. Now the Roman Catholic Church has perverted this truth, but there is indeed no salvation outside the true church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus died for his church and he rose for his church and he reigns for his church and he fights for his church. That's why. There's no salvation outside the true church because the Lord of glory didn't die for the Buddhist temple or the Muslim mosque or the Mormon tabernacle. He died for his church. And the confession puts it like this. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. That simply means this. Christ reigns, and he reigns now, and his church will have the final victory in history and in eternity. And that must be our comfort because if it is not, we have no comfort. Indeed, in Christ, we may say that Christ will not abandon the church. He will not abandon our souls to Sheol or let us see corruption. And that's the final word. Brothers and sisters, if I told you that whatever you are facing today, whatever hardship you are experiencing, 
Whatever pain, whatever persecution, whatever sorrow, if I told you that it would be set right tomorrow, would not your soul be encouraged and your countenance cheered? What if I said two days from now, three days hence? You see, the day will come, though it tarries long, that Christ will arise and have pity on his church. The time to favor her will come. And so wait just a little longer and find your comfort in the guaranteed victory of the church. That's the first comfort in this song. The second comfort is the comfort of answered prayers. The comfort of answered prayers. Look at verse 17. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. There is wisdom in what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said about prayer. He said this. He said, there may be some prayers which you must be content never yourselves to see answered in this world. The accomplishment of them not falling out in your time. And yet this is a great comfort to the saint, namely that God answers the prayers of his people. Now I think we're beginning to see as we go through this psalm that the comforts in this song are very future-oriented. The church will be victorious ultimately one day. God will answer our prayers one day. And so let us not be nearsighted, brothers and sisters. Our prayers shouldn't be, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. How long, O Lord? You see, Goodwin gives us some examples of prayers that neither he nor any of us are likely to see completely fulfilled in our lifetimes. He mentions, number one, the conversion of the Jews to Christ. Number two, the utter downfall of Christ's enemies. And number three, the flourishing of the gospel over all the earth. All these, Goodwin says, are not yet lost, but will have answers. So be comforted, child of God, that your godly prayers will have answers one day. Now, God does answer prayers in history, but even then, we might not see them in our day. Goodwin speaks of the godly prayers of Christians who for 300 years following the ascension of Christ, prayed that kings might come to the knowledge of the truth, that the church might lead a peaceable and quiet life. And he says that prayer was answered 300 years later in the time of Constantine. God answers prayers in his time. So I want to point out in this psalm the greatest answer to prayer and perhaps the longest delayed answer to prayer in the history of God's people. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked down at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. When, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. I'll stop there. The Lord looked down from his holy height, verse 19, 
to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. What does that remind you of? Our Lord Jesus came to set the prisoners free. The darkest deep of night is the blackness of sin, and we are kept in the deepest, deepest depths of despair by the chains of our own condemnation because we've violated God's perfect law. And so you see, the people of God prayed for a long time before that prayer was answered, before God came down and set the prisoners free. But he answered that prayer 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. It was answered when Jesus of Nazareth, in his death, destroyed the one who had the power of death and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, he set free those who were doomed to die. That prayer was answered. You see, the godly prayers of the saints were no small part of that plan. The God of ends is a God of means. And another Puritan reminds us that for 4,000 years, the church was praying for the appearance of the Messiah. And we have one recorded right here in Psalm 102. They never received the answer to that prayer. That's what Hebrews 11:39 tells us. They didn't receive the promise, but we did. It is nice to see prayers answered, right? Well, here's one that was written down for our generation. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come. That we, a people not yet created at that time, might praise the Lord. God answered this prayer. Christ defeated Satan at the cross. And again, I've said before, that's one of the greatest blessings, of course, we have after the cross that the older saints could only dream of. How would God answer their prayers? They were content to wait for it. As Hebrews 11 says, they never received what was promised and that without us, they should not be made perfect. That's Hebrews 11. And I think the way we should understand that, a brief aside here, perfect in Hebrews 11, that it's complete or fulfilled. These Old Testament saints, they looked for and prayed for the day when Christ would come and bring the kingdom. Until then, their prayer was not answered. But when he came, it was answered in us, as it were. Until that happened, they remained incomplete. Now their prayers have been answered. They died without seeing the answer, but they died in hope. And so as a point of application, brothers and sisters, if the generations that come after us can say the same thing about us, namely that without them, we would not be made perfect, then I think we are beginning to understand the comfort that God promises his people as a comfort that we can indeed experience now, but only because we know our prayers will be answered one day. So can a generation not yet born now, will they be able to look back and say, we are completing what we did here 100 years earlier, 200 years earlier. When God answers the prayer that man who is of the earth may no longer oppress, that the teeth of the wicked will be broken, when that prayer is answered, will our descendants be able to look back and say, yeah, our forefathers prayed that continually and we see the fulfillment of it. That's what we see here in the Bible with Psalm 102, Hebrews 11. The prayers are answered in God's time. 
So we've seen thus far, number one, the comfort of the church's future. Number two, the comfort of answered prayer. And finally, we will now see the comfort of the eternal Christ. The ultimate comfort of the psalmist was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The only true comfort of any man ever has been or will be is Christ. So the future of the church is summed up in this, Christ the conquering king. The promise of answered prayers are summed up in this, Christ the faithful high priest. And any and, ever, and, any and every comfort you will ever have in this life is summed up in this, Christ your savior. Christ is the balm for the afflicted. He is the defender of the weak. He is the lifter of the weary head. The psalmist looked to none other than our Lord for his ultimate comfort. And we damn our souls if we dare look for another. Look at verse, I'm going to pick off where I left off here, 23. And I want you to see that there's one more lamentation slipped in at the end of the song here. 23, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. You see, the psalmist is weak. Even after his two comforts, his life is fading. And he asks God to preserve him. But then he turns his attention from his frailty to the only sure comfort in life and in death. And so here at the end of the song, beginning in verse 25, we have the rock-solid, immovable, unshakable foundation for all the above-mentioned comforts, namely, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. I want us to notice how this song ends. It ends with the greatest possible comfort, the greatest comfort you will ever have, both now and long into eternity, and that is this. Understand this, if nothing else, Jesus Christ will never change. Therefore, be of good cheer. Your life, my life, it's a single flash in a galaxy of a trillion burning lights. Everything about us screams fleeting and momentary. Nothing we do seems to last. 500 years from now, we will all be forgotten, every one of us. And that would indeed be the end of it, were it not for this one thing. Verse 27, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Yesterday and today and forever, you, Christ, will endure. Let me read 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Some Greek philosopher once said, the only constant in life is change. But if the only constant is change, then hope and comfort are illusions and impossible. Contra Heraclitus, that philosopher, the only constant in life, my friends, is Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Otherwise, there is no hope. The only constant is our triune God and Father, Son, and Spirit revealed to us in the eternal, unchanging Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so, beloved brother, dear sister, if you are in Christ and your very life is in Christ, hidden in Christ, and when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Of course, it is no mistake that the author of Hebrews quoted this passage in Hebrews chapter 1. This is the supremacy of Christ over the angels, over all earthly priests, over everything and anything, and over everyone anywhere. And this is your only comfort when all is darkness around you. Namely, Christ will not change. Christ's promise, Christ's covenant, Christ's blood supports us in the whelming flood. When all around our soul gives way, Christ then is all our hope and stay. That is why Benjamin Keach said, Christ is the covenant. And the covenant in Christ's blood is your only comfort in this life. And going back to the Heidelberg Catechism, what is thy only, thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your only comfort in life and in death. Now, I like how it says elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It doesn't say yesterday and today and tomorrow. Tomorrow isn't enough. We need Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. But there's one more comfort at the very end of this song. Verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. We don't have time to dig deeply into that, but we do need to hear this word. Again, the comfort of God's people is very future-oriented. It's future-oriented. And God has called us as parents to train up our children in the way that they should go. It's not something we should take for granted. We are to pray for it and work for it. And just as we have, when you have a Christian nation, which is also promised in this song, that the nations will fear the name of the Lord. When the nation is honoring Christ, the people will be exposed to the law of God and the gospel. There will be conversion. When you have a godly home, where the law of God is taught and the gospel is preached. In God's grace, he is pleased to bless that with the conversion of children. And so the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Again, our hope is in the future, and we must be future-oriented. And so again, even here in the last verse of the song, we're reminded that the psalmist's comfort is tied up with the comfort of God's people and the future. All his hardships, all his pain that he's experiencing now, he finds all his comfort in what will happen in the future. Our problems are bigger than us, and thank God our hope is bigger than us. So in conclusion, though it seems at times that the saints are the ones fading, are the ones failing, are the ones losing, we need to hear this word. 
Do not fret yourself because of evildoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Do not fret yourself because of the evil one and all his machinations against Christ's bride. He will fail. And if you are afflicted this morning, remember something. Jesus Christ is not done and he has not changed. The same Christ that answered Stephen's prayer and converted Saul of Tarsus, that's the same Christ that stands before the Father for you. And he is doing everything, everything for the good of his church. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, everything he does is for your good. Might not seem like it at the moment, in the moment, but it is. The rising up of enemies against her, against this church, allowing the wicked to taunt her and prosper, it's all done under the permission of your Christ. The struggles in your family room, in your kitchen, even that sickness, that cancer, that death, in all these things, you can know this. Christ is taking care of his church. The psalmist believed that, and we can too. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change. And his yoke is easy, and his burden is light, and he is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But of course, you don't come to this Savior without bringing your sin. You see, we need to be comforted, but we don't deserve to be. We deserve to be left alone in despair and desolation because of our sin. And yet in God's mercy, he made a way for us to find that comfort. And so I invite you this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, to come to him, bring your sin and lay it at his feet in repentance and you will be comforted now, but more importantly, for eternity. And this glorious Savior will make you sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him with all the hardships and difficulties that he promises. He promises those hardships to you. But he also promises you comfort. And so then, when we understand that, our song won't end in despair. To return to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, it ended like this. You remember the despair but it ends like this. Be still, sad heart, and cease repining. Behind the clouds is the sun still shining. Thy fate is the common fate of all. Into each life some rain must fall. Some days must be dark and dreary. But my dear brothers and sisters, when our life ends, when all our trials and hardship lie behind us, then we can say, all these have perished, but you remain. These all have passed away, but you are the same, Christ, and you are my comfort. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this beautiful psalm, the godly lament of the psalmist. We thank you for the example that he gives that we too can cry out, pour out our hearts before you when we are in despair, when the righteous suffer, when the wicked prosper. And know, Lord, that you do indeed hear prayer. You do answer 
the call of the afflicted. You look down from heaven and you hear the groans of your people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our comfort, our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to you, our faithful Savior. And I pray, Lord, we would be cheered by that in this moment and that you would help us to store up your word in our heart that we might not sin against you and that we might find comfort in times of need. So I pray you would bless this word to us. You would bless this church. You would bless each and every person here, those that are here that have not turned from their sin and trusted in you, Lord Jesus, that you would be at work among us and use this word to convert sinners to yourself. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort the afflicted, you would comfort those who are in pain, those who are in despair, and you would enable us to look to the future and serve you now. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.